0: Uh, welcome to Northridge Church. My name is Aaron Hickson. I am our Henrietta campus pastor, and we're glad you're here this morning. No matter where you're joining us from online at any of our campuses, I want to say a special welcome to my hen fam. Hope you guys are enjoying Henrietta this morning and Greece and Webster online and in Aronicoid as well. We're glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I want to ask you a question this morning as we get rolling. Have you ever tried to pull something off, whether it was a wedding, or a birthday party, or a group project, or maybe like an initiative at work. Have you ever tried to pull something off and had 100% support from every single person around you, everybody in your life, everybody on your team, all of your classmates, all your coworkers, nobody was griping about the photographer choice, nobody skipped all your deadlines. How many of you had 100% support from everybody that you were working with on a project? Wow, there's so many hands that are not going up, right? Because that's just not how things go, right? When you're working with people, it just never happens that way. It never goes that smoothly. There's always some kind of opposition, somebody opposing our plans, somebody generally making life difficult. And I got to say, I am ashamed to admit that I tend to be that person, um, in a lot of scenarios, I am not necessarily very quick to get on board with ideas, even if they're good ideas. And a good example of this would be my relationship with a guy named Devin Graff on our staff. He's, uh, he plays a number of roles. He's a production director at our Greece campus, but he's also our uh, events coordinator for our student ministry. And I, I used to work in student ministry, and when he first came on, his role was to make youth group fun. That's something I'm terrible at. I make nothing fun, and Devin is really fun. And so it was like this perfect combination. He was going to come on and, and help us think that way along with our team. And he was doing a great job. And he would come into my office super excited, like eyes just blazing with this incredible idea that we were going to pull off and it was going to be amazing. And I would say something to him so often that it became kind of my slogan, something that I didn't intend to be my slogan, but it was. I'd be like, hey, yeah, man, good idea. That's a good idea. Um, here are my two concerns. And I usually had more than two concerns, but I hadn't thought of them all yet, so I just led with two concerns, and I would then spend the next 15 minutes or so dismantling his idea and send him away to plan the event that I thought of with all of my concerns alleviated, and it was about 400 times less fun every single time, and they would still, every once in a while, they'll still be like, hey, Aaron, yeah, that's good, but uh, two concerns, and it doesn't go great. Um, I'm... Not a good boss, clearly. You, don't, you wouldn't want to work with me. But isn't that, isn't that something we've all experienced, right? Where you have an idea or you pitch it to your boss or something and they, they, they are giving you a hard time. Our ideas just get blocked. I don't know. It's just how things work. Opposition is part of life. In fact, opposition, I would say it's so much part of our life that opposition is inevitable. It doesn't matter where, what area of our life. It just seems like it's always going to be there. Even if it's just your weird uncle who gets mad no matter what your family plans for the holidays, someone's raining on somebody's parade. And maybe this, you've found this to be true with your kids, you know, like you can't make them all happy all at once, or maybe you've got a, an annoying coworker who vetoes all of your ideas, like me, or maybe you've got a teacher or a coach who it just seems like they've got it out for you, and they're just making your life difficult all the time. But at some point, we all have to come to grips with the fact that opposition is inevitable. We can't avoid opposition. So then the question becomes, what do we have to do to overcome opposition? If it's going to be in our path, what do we have to do to go around it? Um, And the reality is that opposition is not new. It's not new to the human experience. We aren't the first generation to have this. It's been part of the human experience forever. And an ancient Israelite leader whose name is Nehemiah, a guy whose life we've been looking at for the past few weeks, he was no stranger to opposition. Not at all. In fact, he faced opposition that was probably, we're going to see, a lot more significant than the opposition that you and I face in our everyday lives. Uh, But he found a way to make it work. He found a way to work through the opposition. And the way that he handles that opposition, I think, has some amazing lessons that we should pick up on and that we can pick up on. But I do want to say this. Nehemiah's life is not some gigantic fable uh, where every detail is supposed to teach us like a moral of the week. This is not an episode of Dora the Explorer this guy is a real guy. This is a historical event that these details were passed down to us in order to help tell the story. That's why they're there. And so we aren't supposed to just romanticize every single detail. If you're you know, reading part of the Bible in the Old Testament, it's got lots of stories. We aren't supposed to just copy everything that we read there. I don't know if you know much about the life of King David, uh, for instance, but it's probably not an awesome idea to follow his example of murder, adultery, and cover-up not fantastic behavior, um, but what we can do is look at all of the historical records that we have and notice patterns, and then once we notice those patterns, we can evaluate them and see if those same patterns show up anywhere else throughout the Bible, and we are going to look at Nehemiah's life, and we will find some patterns in this chapter of his life, patterns that I think will point us to principles that we can find all throughout the Bible, So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into this story, we're going to get after it, and we're going to see how he faced up against the opposition in his life and see what kind of patterns we can uncover. So if you would turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4, it'll be on page 385 if you're using one of our Bibles. However you access God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn there so you can follow along in this story. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Nehemiah chapter 4. And let's just remember where we are in this story. God has called Nehemiah, this ancient Israelite leader, to leave the kingdom of Persia, which is where most of the Israelites were at this time. They'd been kicked out of their homeland and were there in Persia. And God calls Nehemiah to return to his ancestor's home, to the city of Jerusalem, the the very city where uh, I was able to just be last week. It's amazing. And the city of Jerusalem was where God had placed and had promised to establish his presence on earth. This is a very significant place. And the reason that God wanted Nehemiah to go there was because the walls of that city were broken down. And that might not sound like a big deal, but it actually is a huge deal. Because that meant the city where God wanted to dwell was without honor and was without protection. So Nehemiah's task of rebuilding the walls was really bigger than just walls. It was a very significant job. And the people that were joining him, they would have seen it. They would have seen this undertaking and their presence in it as their their sovereign duty, solemn duty to see these walls returned to their former stature for the glory of their God. This was not like a side job that they picked up as a contractor on the weekends, like flipping houses or something. This was a big deal. He's returning God's power and his majesty to his rightful place. That's a big deal. So in the story, Nate Miller left us off in chapter 2, verse 18, which says this. I'll just catch us up. This is Nehemiah speaking. He said, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And that's where he left us. And this is awesome. Nehemiah is off to the races. He's going to fulfill his incredible calling. But... Look at the very next verse. The next verse gets us kicked off into what we're going to be looking at today. Nehemiah 2.19 says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And there we have it. Opposition. Zero bricks have been laid, and Nehemiah is already having a struggle with opposition. And These guys that it mentions, these three guys, they are not at all excited about a stronghold being built in the middle of their territory. These guys are kind of the governors of this region, and they are not thrilled. This is not the last time we are going to hear these guys' names in this story, I promise you. But Nehemiah responds to their taunting in Nehemiah 2.20, the next verse, by saying this. I answer them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, we will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. Boom, the mic has been dropped. This is the first round of opposition that Nehemiah faces and he handles it beautifully. He totally roasts these clowns and he tells them, "Look, We are going to build and God is going to give us success. And, and yeah, I think it's, we need to pause there. We need to catch this. He says, God will give us success. We are going to build. God's going to give us success. We are going to build. God's going to give us success. We're going to build. God does something. We do something. God does something. We do something. Do not forget that. Okay? That's going to be important. So that's the first round of opposition that Nehemiah faces is from these guys. And what happens next? Well, we're going to see two more, we're going to see glimpses of two more rounds of opposition. And we're going to see a pattern emerge about how Nehemiah stands up against this opposition. So we left off the story at the end of chapter 2. And if you were to look at chapter 3, what you'd find is it's just a description of how the building project begins. Nehemiah gives his team credit for beginning to rebuild nine different gates and different sections of the wall. And so this is awesome, uh, but as they're laying their first round of bricks, guess who decides to come around again and create some problems. You guessed it, Sanballat and Tobiah, we're going to call them Sandy and Toby, because ain't nobody got time to say those names. And they decide to run their mouths again. This is round two of the opposition, and you'll see that with each round, their opposition intensifies. Nehemiah chapter four, um, we're going to start there. But when Sandy heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly ticked off. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and all his homies in the army of Samaria, I'm adding some things, um, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? And then skipping ahead, can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then Toby the Ammonite decides to jump on the roast and says, what are they even building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their walls of stones. They're like, nice one, bro, (laughs) like fist bumps. They think they're hilarious right now. Nehemiah's crews are just getting started building and these guys are over here doing some trash talk and the last thing they want is for this project to be successful that's the last thing they want so they're just trash talking and they're trying to get under their skin but the builders man they they ignore them they keep going and Nehemiah responds by praying some straight up nasty prayers against Sandy and Toby I mean nasty, okay? And we're not going to look into him this morning, but check him out sometime. His response to conflict is pretty strong. He asks God for help, and then he keeps doing what God has called him to do. God does something, Nehemiah does something. God does something, Nehemiah does something. Interesting. I think we're starting to see a pattern emerge. What's next in the story? Well, we get in verse 6, we get a pretty cool update on the, on the progress so far. Nehemiah 4, 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. This is awesome, right? They're 50% of the way there. Despite the jerks who were making fun of them, Nehemiah's guys are digging deep, and they're doing work, and they're restoring God's city. This incredible calling is being fulfilled before our very eyes. We're watching it happen. But what do you think happens next? Of course, our favorite neighborhood bullies decide to show up again for their third round of opposition to this project, but like we said, each time it keeps ramping up, and this time it's more than just mean words. In fact, Sandy and Toby decide to band together with a bunch of other thugs from this region, and they muster their armies to attack Nehemiah's workers. They're going to kill them. They want to destroy them and destroy the progress that they've made. They're done yelling, they're done taunting, they're going to war. Like, literal war. That's their plan. But Nehemiah responds, good old Nehemiah, and he does something that I don't think should surprise us. Nehemiah 4, 9, he says this, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So, no surprise, Nehemiah does two things. He sought God, he prayed, And then he does the common sense thing. He sets a guard. That's what we've been seeing. Have you been tracking this pattern? We're seeing this over and over and over. When Nehemiah faces a problem, he seeks God and he does something. He seeks God and he does something. That's three times in a row he does the same exact thing. But buckle up because this third wave of opposition gets even worse. Nehemiah 4.10 says this. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, these are the guys on his team. The strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So now on top of everything else going on, he has a mutiny on his hands. The builders are saying that it's too hard. This is, remember, this is while the bad guys are on the verge of attacking. It's a straight-up crisis right now. The pressure in this situation is building and building. He's got internal, internal pressure from his own guys, external pressure from the bad guys. The entire project has come to a screeching halt. He's halfway done, and at this point, it looks like he's got no hope. This project is dead in its tracks. This is the darkest moment of this story. The bad guys are coming and his workers are on strike. What is going to happen? What's the result of this third wave of opposition? What happens? I think it ought to blow our minds. Check it out. Nehemiah 4.15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Wow. Seriously, did you catch what happens there? This is the best possible outcome. The bad guys don't attack. They don't even have to do anything, and they just decide they don't want to fight him anymore. And the whole situation was apparently so invigorating to his workers that they decide to return back to their jobs. This is incredible. That is a huge win for Nehemiah. And personally, that's not what I'm expecting when we get to that point in the story. But did you notice how nehemiah records the victory look back at chapter 4 verse 15 it's the same scene same theme we've been seeing when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that god had frustrated it in other words he's acknowledging that he played a part he did something but god gets the credit Are we catching this theme? It's over and over. God works and we work. God works and we work. And inside of that dynamic, God accomplishes his agenda. This is fascinating to me. So here Nehemiah stands. He's overcome three significant leadership obstacles, and he's 50% of the way done. They're close, but they aren't there yet. So let's keep tracking through the story and see what happens next. Nehemiah, we're going to be in 416. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Those who carried material did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of his builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. So for the rest of the project, Nehemiah decides he's going to stay vigilant toward the threat that he knows exists from Sandy and Toby. He diverts half of his men to security detail. And if you were to read the rest of chapter 4, he develops an enemy alert communication system to make sure that his guys are prepared no matter where the attack might come from. And on top of that, as if he hasn't already done enough, each of his builders in this project, he makes them wear a sword at their side. At this point, Nehemiah has no chill. He refuses to abandon the task that God has given him of building this wall, but he's taking smart, practical steps to ensure success. He will not allow his personal lack of preparation to hinder their progress, and they keep making progress, incredible progress. With a 50% reduced workforce and with some very, very, very unhappy neighbors, they keep on grinding. And we get an amazing progress report in chapter six. It's incredible. So, drum roll, please, because this is going to be good. Seriously, drum roll. At all of our locations right now, drum roll. Keep it going. You guys, you give out so early. Come on, it's a drum roll. Keep it going. You wait until the reveal. Drum roll. Nehemiah says in chapter six that. They completely finished the wall. You guys are very underwhelming. (laughs) This is a big deal. They've reached their goal. This was the whole reason that Nehemiah left his cushy job with the king, and that job was completed. They worked hard, and now their names are going to go down in history. You can literally read them as the guys that God used to restore the security and the renown of the city of God. This is amazing. Look in chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Wow. Wow. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their swagger because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. This is the climax. Nehemiah has done it. His enemies are shaking in their boots and I think we have to recognize this moment for what it is. It is a massive undertaking that has successfully come to an end. Ah, sigh of relief. Job well done, Nehemiah did it. And from this point on in Nehemiah's life, there's a lot that we can learn, and we're gonna look at that for the next few weeks, but I think we need to step back and ask, what lessons should we walk away with from this chapter of Nehemiah's life? What did we notice, and what might it mean for us about the challenges that we face? Because when we are like Nehemiah, and we choose to do what God has called us to do, there will be opposition. You can count on that. So what should we do about that? How should we handle it? I think a great piece of wisdom that we can pick up from this stage of Nehemiah's life is symbolized in these two tools. I know every time there's a prop box, like, what's in there? Here we go. This is the moment. This is the reveal. I think it's symbolized with a hammer and a sword. A hammer and a sword. Why these two tools? Well, remember, When they were about to be attacked, Nehemiah sets up some new security protocols, and he insists that his builders do double duty. He required, he said, look, we will not be caught by surprise. So he made all of his builders carry a sword. Throughout this this story, we see the same theme emerge over and over. Nehemiah prayed, and Nehemiah worked. Nehemiah prayed, and Nehemiah worked. And in this case, he's saying the builders are building. He's saying, we got to keep going, guys. We've got a project to complete, but... We've gotta do it carrying a sword. And I think these two things are an amazing picture of pursuing God's objective for your life. In other words, using a hammer, building that wall, continuing to make progress, while taking practical steps to overcome opposition. In other words, carrying a sword for your defense. It perfectly pictures someone who believes in prayer, who believes in trusting in God, continuing to swing the hammer, but at the same time, not ignoring their responsibility to be wise, to carry a sword for defense. It's as if in this entire story, what he's saying to his builders is this, look, hey, don't be distracted. Keep on building. We gotta keep on making progress, but don't be foolish, guys. Carry a sword. Trust in God, but use your head, right? Let's be on offense, but don't forget about playing some defense here. Pray and trust, pray and trust, pray and trust, but set a guard. Let go and let God, but use some common sense, right? Trust in God's sovereignty, but recognize your responsibility, Nehemiah manages this tension that is so present in all of our lives. He handles it so beautifully. He prayed and understood that God was in control of the outcome. Yet at the same time, he was prepared and wise and left nothing to chance that he could control. Because what if Nehemiah had just decided, he's like, look, we we heard about these guys, they're going to attack. But what if he had just decided, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to do nothing. You know, we're just going to keep swinging these hammers, and I'm just going to sit around and hope that maybe God's going to send an earthquake or something. That would kind of sound like faith, right? That would sort of sound like the spiritual thing to do. But what does the text say was the reason that Sandy and Toby didn't attack? Look back at chapter 4, verse 15. It says this, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, They didn't attack because they knew the Israelites were prepared. That's why. And if they hadn't been prepared, who knows what would have happened? And the results would have been Nehemiah's fault. Because sitting back and hoping and wishing that things will turn out after you've prayed is not faith, it's wishful thinking. Sitting back and waiting, that's not faith, that's wishful thinking. Has God on occasion throughout history told his people, hey, look, you sit back and do nothing. I will fight on your behalf. Has he told them that before? Yes, he has. But each time that he does, he says, hey, look, this is kind of unusual, but do nothing because I got you, fam. But that's not what he says to Nehemiah, and that's not what he tells us to do. This is not an unusual situation. God was fighting on behalf of Nehemiah's case by giving him a brain giving him some leadership savvy, and giving him a bunch of dudes with swords. So he would have been absolutely crazy to not make his guys carry their swords. God has worked in his life and provided him with every single thing that he needed to be successful. And Nehemiah took advantage by using every single resource at his disposal. He prayed, but he set a guard. They swung this hammer. Yes, they did, but they carried a sword. And when it comes to obedience in our lives, it's always wise to seek God in prayer and ask him for strength, of course. But it's also always wise to make a plan of action that's intelligent and practical. I think so often obedience is not as complicated as we think it is. That doesn't mean it's easy. It just means it's typically simple. And sometimes I think we need to take some of the spooky and the mystical and the fogginess out of the equation and just be straightforward about it. Like Nehemiah was. He prayed and he set a guard. He kept building, but he protected himself. In other words, he's saying to us and he was saying to his people, swing the hammer, but carry your swords. Swing the hammer, but carry your swords. Trust in God, guys, but use your head. And if your step of obedience that you need to take this week is you need to spend more time with God, then don't just pray for strength every day. That's the hammer. That's really good. That's a great first step, and we've got to do that. But that's just the first step. (laughs) Don't forget about your sword. If you want to read your Bible, why don't you get a Bible app on your phone? Or maybe you could put your Bible next to your favorite chair in the living room. Maybe you unplug your TV if you're anything like me, you're so lazy, you won't even get up to plug it back in. You'll just reach for whatever's closest. That's just smart. Look, if I'm living a pi squared life and I'm praying for opportunities with this coworker or this neighbor, and I'm really hoping that someday I'm going to be able to pray and then invest in the relationship and invite them to a relationship with God, and I'm just praying, God, when that day comes, give me the words to say. Man, that's good, that's fine, but don't just pray that. Why don't you practice the words to say? Write them down. Practice them on somebody who already understands the good news of the gospel. If you're anything like me, it won't make any sense the first 50 or 60 times you say it. So you might as well practice. If you get to the moment that God finally provides you with, where you have a chance to explain the gospel to this friend or coworker, and if what comes out of your mouth doesn't make any sense, is that your fault or is it God's fault? Give you a hint. The answer doesn't rhyme with sod, Yes, we need to keep pounding away. We need to keep trusting in God, taking next steps towards obedience. But use your brain. Carry a sword. Because the fact is, opposition is going to come. It's inevitable. Laziness is going to assault your marriage. Your busyness in life will assault your relationship with God. So what do we have in place to prevent those attacks? Nehemiah literally thought it was worth 50% of his human resources just to keep away distractions. So what does it say about us when we're trying to work toward obedience and the best plan we can come up with is let go and let God? Is that faith or is that lazy? We've got to swing the hammer, of course. But common sense requires that we also must carry our sword. So what does it look like for us? How would we get practical here? Honestly, I think the way to get practical with this is to, wait for it, get practical. That's it. Write it down, it's really good. Go ahead, let's hear the pen clicks. Write it down, here's what I mean. What's an area of your life where your obedience could improve. Man, I got plenty. <laughs> what are the things that God has clearly and plainly revealed to us or something that we should be doing, should not be doing, and that we struggle to do? Things like you know, loving your wife, obeying your parents, working to the best of your ability, not gossiping, not lying, not lusting, loving generously, putting other people first, those those kinds of things. Where are you struggling? Where is the opposition winning? So pick your area. You've got the area of your life. Hopefully we have it in your brain right now. Do you have it? Think about that area. And in that area that you're thinking about right now, get painfully and ridiculously practical about what it would look like to overcome sin in that area. I mean, goodness gracious, you better start with prayer. Yeah, you better be taking this to God on the daily. That's a given. But then what are the obvious steps that you could take? It wasn't rocket science that Nehemiah gave his guys swords, was it? That's not that crazy. But God used it to give him success. So what do you practically need to do? Do you need to delete an app? Do you need to avoid a break room? Drive a different route to work? Ask for accountability? Move out of the house? Move back into the house? Have sex with your spouse? Not have sex with your not spouse. What do we need to do? Do we need to give up the keys? What is the equivalent for you of carrying a sword this week? What common sense, no brainer step do you need to take to be a leader like Nehemiah? A leader who puts all of his trust in God's power. All of his trust in God's power but then uses every resource that God has put at his disposal to overcome opposition and to follow through in obedience. Because this... This is not just a concept from the life of Nehemiah. We were looking for patterns, and I think we found one, but this is a pattern that's all over the pages of the Bible. Check out what Paul said in the first century to Christians in the city of Philippi in Philippians 2. He said this, Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work your salvation out with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, to will, and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is telling them that it is God who works in them. That's the hammer. But he also tells them to work out their salvation. That's the sword. Ask God for help, of course, but take the obvious steps. And we have to know, like Nehemiah did, that when we work, it's always because of God's work in our lives. It's the only reason, in fact, that we have the desire at all to even do the right thing in the first place. It's because God has already worked to change our hearts, to change our desires, to love Him, and to seek Him. God always gets the credit, and God always does the work, and we have got to swing the hammer. We've got to continue to do what God has called us to do, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the smart thing. It doesn't mean we shouldn't carry a sword. So this week, we got to swing the hammer, but goodness gracious, we have got to carry our sword. Let me pray. God, thank you for your son and for the fact that his death for us is what gives us the ability, the interest, the desire, the passion to please you. Thank you that you have worked on our behalf from before we ever wanted your help. And I ask that this week, as we pursue you in obedience, that we would choose to take practical, simple, obvious steps because our love for you is so great because you loved us first. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.